Well, good morning, everyone. I know that Grace Baptist Church is a place, we've got a number of, uh, a lot of diversity, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different interests, but I know that a number of you share a common interest in baseball. We've got some, uh, some diehard Jays fans, and uh, when we get into March, spring training schedule gets in place and start looking forward to uh, uh, opening, uh, opening day coming at the end of, uh, end of this month when the Yankees will come to town. I wonder whether, uh, how many of our baseball fans uh, know Phil Humber, Philip Humber? Anyone, anyone uh, ringing a bell there? Uh, Phil Humber is an interesting person for me. On April 12, 2012, uh, he, he uh, pitched a perfect game. Retired 27 batters in a row without any walks or hits and became only the uh, 18th person in Major League Baseball's 114-year history to do so. It was an incredible feat. Uh, that week, he was named American League Player of the Week. Uh, he went on the David Letterman Show and, and uh, read out the top 10 list. Uh, he got a call from President Barack Obama congratulating him. Obama is a famous uh, Chicago White Sox fan. And he got a plaque in the National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum uh, celebrating this historic thing that he did. It was truly amazing. But all was not well. In the next three games, he allowed 20, he allowed 20 runs, which is not, not great for a pitcher. Uh, Soon after that, he was dropped from the starting rotation. By the end of the season, he was traded from the White Sox. And for the next several years, he bounced around to a number of different teams between here and Korea, but never really found his stride again. He went on to retire before the beginning of the 2016 season. Sports Illustrated writer Albert Chen wrote this about him. He said, for one magical April afternoon, Philip Humber was flawless. But that random smile from the pitching gods came with a heavy burden, the pressure to live up to a standard that no one can meet. Humber described his own feelings this way. He said, after the game, it was like, I've got to prove that that perfect game was not a fluke. I almost felt like I had to prove that I deserved to be on that list. He sought perfection in order to prove his worth as a baseball player, and it destroyed his career. Killed it. But it's not just baseball players that'll do that. Parents will do that with their children, right? They will seek to prove their worth through their children's perfection, through their children accomplishing all that they desire of them. People will aim for perfection in their appearance in order to prove their worth and attractiveness. People will come to church and seek through their spiritual perfection, try and prove their worth to God, try and prove their worth to other people. When parents do it, it kills their children. When baseball players do it, it kills their careers. When people come to church and try to do it, it kills true spiritual life. 
And if enough of people in a church do it, it kills the life of the church itself. We're in a series called How God Sets People Free, and we've been looking at the, second, uh, we've been looking at the letter to the Galatians. And today's passage deals with this, area, this whole area of trying to seek perfection in order to prove ourselves, in order to try and justify who we are, trying to prove our worth to God. We, we've been saying that there were a group of people that had entered the church and they were saying that the way that you, what you really need to do, what you're missing is you need to take the Old Testament law and seek to uh, pursue it with perfection in order to justify yourself before God, in order to prove your worth to him. And in responding to them, Paul lays down uh, probably the most profound truth in all scripture. He shows us how we can come alive to God and he will deal with some of the things that will kill true spiritual life. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me. We'll be looking at Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin by reading verses 15 to 21. Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I were to choose one passage of Scripture and I had about 20 minutes, this is a passage that I would sit down and share with Philip Humber as if I were, if I were his pastor, if I had an opportunity to encourage him spiritually in any way. And it's a passage that I need to remind myself of when I am tempted as... I often am, and as you often are, to prove myself through my performance, to somehow justify myself before God. There are three principles that come out for how to come alive in our relationship with God. The first is that there's no new life without a death to our old life. Faith in Jesus can bring new life, something radically new, but not if we continue to hang on to our old ways. And not just the old things that we did, but the old mindset of how we relate to God and, and, and ourselves and our world. There's no new life without a death to our, to our old life. Now, Paul says in verse 16 that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you look at verse 16 clearly, it, it, it actually repeats almost the same thing three times in a row. 
he is uh, just trying to get this point across before we get started, before we get into all the other details, you are not justified by law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The word justify is a legal term. If you're in court, you were either justified and declared innocent, or you were condemned, and punishment would be brought upon you. Now, if you're brought before a judge today, uh, if you're in court, maybe uh, the best that you can hope for is to be declared innocent. They declare you not guilty. Uh, if you appear in traffic court and you've, you've, you've been charged with going through a red light, maybe best case scenario, the, the judge will proclaim not guilty. You didn't go through that red light. The judge will, will not in any traffic court declare you're a really good driver. You're, you're an outsta- you, you've, done, you've done an outstanding job of, of operating your vehicle. Like there, there's no declaration of how good you are. It's just de- declaring that you are not bad in this particular area. But th- this word here, justify, is speaking of something more than that. It's a declaration of our righteousness, a declaration of our worth in the sight of God. It's what Phil Humber wanted his, to hear his fans say. And three times... Three times, Paul says in verse 16, you'll never be justified on the basis of your performance. That only comes through faith in Christ. By the time you get to the third time, he's gone over and over and over in one verse, you can hear the Galatians trying to think, yeah, yeah, we know that. We get that. Stop repeating yourself. And maybe you're saying the same thing about this morning's sermon. Yeah, I know that. Don't need to repeat that. You know, not justified through works of the law, but through faith in Christ. But Paul keeps on repeating it for a very important reason. Because we can know things that we have not lived out and put into practice in our lives. There's no new life without a death to the old life. And sometimes we don't make the connection between the two. Every time Paul taught about this, people would bring up an objection. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was a common objection. People kept saying... If you say that people are justified through faith in, Je- in Jesus, then people will do whatever they, will, will do whatever they want. You, you need to give some more threats. You need to warn people and have people worried about, uh, about God condemning them and judging them. That's the way you keep people in line. But Paul knew that the opposite was true. He says in verse 17, in effect, if we're seeking justification through faith in Christ, and it turns out, We're worse sinners than before we believed him. It's not Jesus' fault. That's not the, it's not a problem with the message. It's just a matter of us clinging to the old life. It's a matter of us holding on to something that Jesus calls us to die to, to put aside. There's no new life without a death to our old life. Now, often what will happen is we'll put our faith in Christ. We'll start living the new life. We'll start enjoying the new life. But if we don't do a full inventory of the old life and how it holds on to us, it begins to creep in and infect what would otherwise have been a new start. Before long, we can find ourselves rebuilding that old life, but with a new label, Christian, gospel, Jesus, but many of the same values and patterns 
habits and ways of relating to God and ourselves have been unchanged. That's what Paul's describing in verse 18 when he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I begin a new life through faith in Jesus Christ, but then end up rebuilding the old life before him, it's not an indication that Jesus didn't deliver. It's not a sign that this thing just didn't work for you. It didn't catch for you. It's a sign that I haven't really entered into the new life. There's no new life without a death to our old life. Now, I mentioned to you a little bit about Phil Humber. What I didn't mention was the fact that he's a professing Christian. He went on a missions trip to the Philippines the summer before, uh, the the, the winter before the start of his uh, 2012 season. If you'd have seen Phil Humber during uh, uh, during his pro career, he has Colossians 3.23 inscribed on his baseball glove. That's a good thing to do. Uh, he, he is a, a Christian who knows the gospel, but at least for this period in his life, as it related to his baseball career, I don't believe he was understanding how to apply the gospel. Aiming at perfection so you can prove your worth to people is not the Christian life. Aiming at perfection in order to earn the acceptance of the crowd is not what the gospel calls us to. And whether it's your professional baseball career or your parenting or your view of your own body or your relationships or whatever else it might be, it will kill something deep inside you. So, Have you put to death your old life? Have you closed a chapter on the old patterns of how you relate to God and how you relate to other people? Are you trying to prove yourself on the basis of your performance? Or has faith in Jesus Christ really put an end to that? Has it really closed that chapter of your life so you can truly begin to understand and appreciate and and enjoy something new that Jesus wants to offer? So we start by saying that there's no new life without a death to to our old life. But there's also no new life unless there is a death to sin's, sin's penalty. How we relate to what Jesus accomplished on the cross is crucial to a life of freedom. It's no new life without a death to sin's penalty. Now in verses 19 to 20, Paul is going to describe two different kinds of death that he's gone through in order to help him to live. And often, as Christians, we don't fully grasp either of these two deaths. The first one comes in verse 19. Paul says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And anytime somebody talks about them dying and them living in the same same, uh, sentence, we get a little confused. What is he talking about? Paul describes in in Romans 7 how he used to think he was doing pretty well. He liked hanging out uh, at the synagogue. He liked liked talking about God and studying about him. And he felt that he he was doing pretty well in all of the things that he would need to do in order to be accepted to God. 
been trained in all of the Pharisee customs and traditions from a young age. He'd gone to an elite rabbinic school and had just been getting accolades and, and, uh, and being affirmed in that setting. He was an upstanding Jew by anyone's accounts. But as he studied the Hebrew scriptures more, something happened. He couldn't go for very long without a deeper study of the the Ten Commandments. And as he came to the tenth one, at some point in his life, he read that commandment to not covet. And he realized, this one seems to be different than all the others. Or maybe this one helps me to understand what God really meant by all the others. But that last one said not to covet. And Paul said, something inside me died. It was as if he realized for the first time that the law demanded more than he was living up to. He, dem- he realized that God was looking at his heart, that God demanded a level of obedience that went beyond the external. It went beyond all of the forms that people had trained him in and that people often gave much attention to. He had been trying to do his best to do all the right things, but as he saw that commandment not to covet, it killed him. It did for him a little bit like what taking that fruit did for Adam and Eve. Adam hid from, hid from God. He felt the sense of shame from him. He distanced himself. He felt a sense of fear towards him. Killed his spiritual life. Didn't feel as close to God anymore. Didn't feel as connected to God any, any, anymore. Didn't feel as open with others in the synagogue anymore. Killed something inside him. If you look at verse 19, it says that Paul died to the law so that he might live for God. You see what happened? See, Paul came to realize this sense of the law doing him in, of of it killing him, he saw that that was an important step for him. It helped him to see that there was, that this law was pointing him to a need for a savior. It had undone his complacency. It had killed his sense of self-righteousness, but it had proven to him he needs a savior. It had driven him to seek God for his mercy. He came to see that the law was designed to convince us that we don't live up to its standards. He realized the law wasn't a savior. The law just pointed to a savior. In 2012, pitching a perfect game didn't save Phil Humber's career. It actually ended up killing his career. It did him in. It showed him how impossible it was to attain perfection. And if Phil Humber is going to find peace in life, he'll need a different savior. It can't be the perfect game because he'll never pitch another one. And that's what Paul realized as he came to the law. He realized this is impossible. I can't do it. And the conclusion that you make is either I'll fake it or I'll seek a savior who will deliver me. I need someone to rescue me. Paul realized that trying to prove himself through the law was killing him, and so he abandoned it, not 
not as a means of guidance, not as a means of understanding and growing in his appreciation of God, not as a means of understanding God's moral will, but as a means of trying to justify himself, as a means of trying to prove his worth, as a means of trying to attain perfection. It did him in. That was his first death. Dying to the law left Paul convinced he was a sinner and the law couldn't be a savior. It was an important realization, but it's still pretty discouraging at this point. In verse 20, though, he describes the second death. And this one made all the difference. If you look at the beginning of verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. And you might be thinking, I know my Bible memory is not perfect, but as far as I can remember, Jesus was crucified with a couple of thieves. I don't remember Apostle Paul being on the cross beside him. But that's not the, the, the crucifixion with Jesus that he's talking about here. When we put our faith in Jesus as Savior, we affirm he died for us. And because he died for us, it's as if we were up there on the cross in Jesus Christ. He died in our place, and so it was if we died on the cross there along with him. And that truth gave Paul life. It gave Paul life because of double jeopardy. Double jeopardy says you can't be punished for the same crime twice, right? And it's inspired, you know, revenge movies where someone has been framed for a crime that they didn't commit, they pay the penalty, and then they go and say, okay, I'm going to get you back and I'm actually going to commit that crime. That's, That's the exact opposite of what's happening here. Double jeopardy with Jesus is completely different. Because he was crucified for us by faith in Christ, we have been crucified with him. And it gives us a whole new approach to God and the law. Paul's saying something in effect of, when I, before, when I read the command not to covet, it killed me. I hated the law because it condemned me. It pushed me away from God because it just reminded me I can't do it. I'm not good enough. But double jeopardy changes that. Through faith in Jesus, I recognize and I believe my penalty is paid. It's like it was really me on that cross dying for my sins. And so now there is no more condemnation. Now there is no more penalty, no more punishment. I've got nothing to prove with God's law. I'm not trying to pitch a perfect game to prove my value to God. Now when I read the commandment not to covet... I can be honest about the true condition of my heart. I can be honest that often I do covet. And because that doesn't come now with condemnation and with discouragement that I've failed to, 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 to live up to the standard, I've already accepted all of, those three, all of those things through the gospel. Now I can just deal with the behavior. Now I can just deal with the heart condition. Now I can just come to God with a recognition that I I need his help, I need his strength. I'm not alone anymore. God's on my side. God is my ally. He's no longer my judge and my condemnation. The double jeopardy of the cross changes everything. 
And so it opens up a radically new way to live, potentially. You may be a Christian and say, I know all about this, but it just doesn't matter to me all that much. I just, I'm not feeling it. it doesn't, I've heard this, I kind of get it. It doesn't really seem to matter to me though. If it doesn't make a difference to you, it's a good sign that God's opinion doesn't matter to you very much. God can accept you because of Christ, but if what you're really after is for people to accept you based on your performance, this, does, this will not make much difference to you. If you think that the Christian life is about believing Jesus so you can go to heaven and then working to score the perfect game so that you can get into the Baseball Hall of Fame, then very little of the scriptures will have great meaning or significance to you. It won't. Because that isn't the Christian life. We, we, come, to, we, come, to, uh, we come to the scriptures with a recognition that God, if it's God's, God's opinion of us that really matters. And until we have come to terms with whose approval we are going to seek, whose acceptance we will hold in esteem, then some of these, some of these issues are really just, just theory for us. They're just in the abstract. If you're saying that people's opinion, mat people's opinion matters more to you than God's, I would have you listen to the testimony of Phil Humber this morning who would say, that kind of life will kill you. It'll destroy you. So there's no new life without a death to our old life. There's also no new life without a death to sin's penalty. But finally, the passage teaches us that there's only new life through the Savior who died for us. Christianity is not just about stopping doing some things. It's not. It's about beginning a new life together with Christ. There's only new life through the Savior who died for us. Now, how do you live if you come to the recognition that you had a death penalty hanging over you and somebody died to take your place and set you free? How do you live then? Well, Paul tells us in verse 20 how it worked in his life. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. We saw that already. And then he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's trying to make a couple of points here. He's saying, in effect, now that I've closed the chapter on my old life, it's no longer I who live. It's not about me anymore. It's not about me trying to capture the spotlight, stand in and get the, get the attention. I realize now that he deserves the attention. He deserves the spotlight. I realize now it's about him. It's not about me. But he doesn't just say it's no longer I who live. He adds, but Christ who lives in me. He's pointing to the fact that now he has a new strength to live. Now he has, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ living inside him. There's new power there. There's new strength there new resources, new riches. It's no longer just Paul, even the Apostle Paul, trying to do his best. He's got new power, 
Christ lives in him. Christ is at work in, in and through him. When we're trying to prove our own worth, we're on our own. You're trying to seek your own glory, better hope you've got a lot of, uh, lot of, lot of strength in you. It's because it's it's, that's all you got. You're not getting any help to live that to live that live for that purpose. But when Christ comes into our life and we live for Him, He gives us new power. It's like we have switched from trying to swim upstream to now moving downstream. And maybe we've gotten into a raft and we're going downstream. It's it's that kind of uh, of of change. It's Christ's power that makes a difference in our life. Finally, he shows a new motivation for his life. Before, it was trying to earn some acceptance or approval. In the second half of verse 20, Paul says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Almost feels like he's saying too much. Like, wait a second, Paul. I hate to break it to you, but Christ died for all of us. It wasn't just you. He doesn't just love, like he's, he loves all the, God so loved the whole world. What are you kind of making this all about you, Paul? But Paul's saying, he loved me. He cared enough for me that he went to the cross. He realizes how profoundly personal what Christ did and how Christ feels. And it motivates all that he does. By faith, have you laid hold of what Christ has done for you? Do you have a recognition that if you were the only sinner who had ever repented, Jesus would have still gone to the cross for you? Jesus would have still given up all that he had in order to save you. That that love that we speak about in the scriptures that is, yes, in one sense for the whole world is very, in a very real sense, God's personal love for you. It's way more intimate than we often will approach it. Let the love that Jesus showed you at the cross energize a life of devotion to him. Let it empower a life that is given over to him, not trying to pitch the perfect game or earn the approval of the crowds, not trying to somehow earn us standing in God's eyes. All of those things are off the table. All of those things are behind us. But let the love of Christ move you to put to death the old life, to put to death and close the chapter on those old ways of relating to God, to rest in the double jeopardy of the cross, to know that there is now no condemnation, that God or God could bring against you and start living to the glory of the one who loved you enough to save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing wonder of the cross. We thank you for the incredible love of our Savior. Help us, Father, to stop trying to justify ourselves. Help us to stop trying to prove ourselves to you or to anyone else. Open our eyes to see our hearts as you see them.
I pray that you would help us to confront the patterns in our lives that we cling to, the, the old ways of seeing ourselves or our life, our, our, uh, the people around us or our relationship with you. Give us the courage to put those patterns to death and help us to walk in the freedom of knowing that through faith in Jesus Christ, the penalty of our sins has all been paid. There's no condemnation. Now we live with Christ in us and his love empowering us. Help us to rest in that great love. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.